Welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. It is our intention to continue offering these audio recordings free of charge. However, if you would like to donate to support our cause and keeping our facility open in Nashville, you can do so via the Venmo app by sending a donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can find us online at our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, and click the Donate tab. Wise action is the fourth factor of the Buddha's Eightfold Path. So if you're new to Buddhism, it's kind of right in the middle of the Eightfold Path, but it also serves as the foundation for the path in a way. Many of y'all have probably seen the Dharma wheel as a symbol of the Eightfold Path because it's circular and not very linear of a path. And so the foundation is really ethics. It's living, living our lives in, in accordance with certain principles. And um, the Buddha taught the Eightfold Path as a way of life. Right? It's, a, it's his prescription for uh, individual and collective well-being. And it's, you know... A lot of times I think we're used to our religious and spiritual traditions being these kind of authorities on how one should live. And I find it to be true for myself that so much of the time I'm not really looking for anyone to tell me what to do. I'm looking instead most of the time for support and guidance. I value guidance. I value support. But I don't really value commandments, you know, and rules, um, because I find that once we get, once we, our mind really sinks its teeth into commandments and rules, you know, it just becomes another territory to get caught in black and white thinking and to get caught in, you know, um, being the karma police of the world. And that's not very useful, right? Because it takes the focus off of me. And so I really love looking at how the Buddha really taught a, a, a path of practice that's really contemplative. It's not about saying this is what I believe because I'm a Buddhist. It's about saying this is what I aspire to practice and this is the world I aspire to live and to practice in because I'm a Buddhist. And so we want to practice a way of life that promotes peace and harmony. And we've got to remember that the Buddha did this during his time that, you know, is kind of a radical path. He left his home and he became a spiritual renunciate in search of a, of a life beyond that of the material world. And it was really a commitment, a dedication, and, and there became a monastery and a community. And so the Eightfold Path was really the guiding principles of this community. And wise action... Uh, this fourth factor of the Eightfold Path was an investigation into the skillfulness and appropriateness of our behaviors, of our actions. And, and the way that this is traditionally looked at in, in the Buddhist framework is through training precepts. There are certain kind of parameters or trainings or ways that we want to investigate our behavior but ultimately, at the base of these training, training precepts are asking ourselves the question, does what we do in the moment line up with what we value? And that's 
That's a, a difficult question, I think. You know, because if I ask myself that question honestly, I would say that a lot of the times it doesn't. You know, a lot of the times what I do doesn't necessarily line up with what I ultimately value. What I do a lot of the times lines up with what's comfortable. It lines up with what's familiar. I do what I I do out of habit a lot of the times. I act a lot out of fear, selfishness. Even delusion, just fantasy and uh, confusion. And so this is kind of our path is we we really have to look at how uh, in order to investigate what's skillful and appropriate in our behaviors, we almost have to back up and look at how often we misperceive and we don't see clearly a situation, a circumstance, and we don't really see clearly how to respond to a situation or a circumstance. We oftentimes are acting out of habit. And so this is why the Buddha, the Eightfold Path, starts with wise view. We have to know that one of the, the fundamental principles of wise view, that what we do has consequence, whether we're aware of it or not. So when I misperceive things or when I, when I don't really do what I value, it has consequence. And when I do what I value, it has consequence. And this is the law of karma. And the interesting thing about the Buddhist teaching around karma is karma is not a, a teaching that's new to the Buddha. The Buddha didn't make it up. It was there in the Vedic tradition long before the Buddha ever came along. And what the Buddha did is he he switch the emphasis of karma from this kind of universal determinism to an individual choice. So karma means that whatever you practice, you get better at. You know, if you practice better understanding and reflecting upon your values and you try to embody those principles in your daily life, your actions will line up with them more frequently, more consistently. And as they line up more consistently, they, uh, they create the process of, of what's called purification of karma, the cultivation of a mind that's more inclined towards generosity and compassion, renunciation, goodwill. So whatever we practice, it, it gets continually reinforced as a habit in the mind. And when we're looking at wise view, we, we kind of have to be humble about this. We don't always see clearly. We misperceive things. And, and we misperceive things, I think, in two ways. And these two ways are, are they're kind of uh, semantics, but I think they're important. They tell us something about perception. One is we literally misperceive and don't think, see things accurately a lot of the times. We get caught in our confirmation bias. We confirm what we already know or what we believe to be true. So we filter things through our memory bank. And our memory bank is, has been shaped through experience. You know, But our memory bank, when we're talking about things like racism, white supremacy, colonization, you know, it's also a whole 
set of conditions that have been passed down generationally, right? So we, we see through things through our limited experience of the world and our ancestors' limited experience of the world. And I tell a story a lot of the times about a simple, a simple way that we misperceive um, became apparent to me when I was on retreat in New Mexico. I've told this story a lot, but I think it's just a good example of how fallible our ability to perceive reality really is. And I was out in the Carson National Forest at a retreat center called Vallecitos in the middle of nowhere. And I was doing some walking meditation, probably like 500, 600 yards from the meditation hall. So I was way out in the woods and there were probably only like 25, 30 retreatants at the meditation center. And then there was one teacher and a couple assistants, couple cooks. And so it was mostly us. And I was out there pretty much alone doing walking meditation. And as I was walking, I remember I turned around, I'd gotten to the end of my path and I turned around and as I turned around, there was a wolf that was like 15 feet away from me, like staring at me straight in the eyes, like straight on my path. And all of this reaction came up. You know, first it was freeze. And I remember just stopping. (laughs) And I had enough awareness. I think I had enough, done enough practice that I was able to, um, to kind of think rationally. And so I started thinking to myself, you know, how am I going to get out of this? It's just me and this wolf and no one else around for, you know, a couple hundred yards. And so I remember I I told myself, I'm just going to slowly turn around and continue the walking meditation, but in the opposite direction, just to walk away slowly. (laughs) And I was hoping that the wolf would be as mindful as I was. And so I was like, man, maybe he'll respect my practice and shit and he'll just leave me alone, you know? And so I turned around and I just was like, you know, all noble, slowly walking. And I just hear time slows down and I hear this panting leap and I hear this thing. It's like time completely condenses and I turn around and I see this thing jump up at me and then it licks my hand and I just completely am confused. Like what the hell just happened? And I turn around and I look and it was someone's dog that was in the woods and just blew my mind. I'm like, adrenaline's pumping. What the hell just happened? And uh, yeah, it was someone's dog, right? And so here I am in an environment where I think this is where wildlife lives. I'm alone. There aren't any domestic animals out here and I get licked by what I thought was a wolf. And so it's kind of anticlimactic, but that's usually the case with a lot of our misperceptions. Things that usually seem emotional at first end up, uh, once we really get to see them and know them, making sense a lot of the times. We get caught in the confirmation bias of our mind. We filter things through our memory bank and we misperceive things. We just don't see them accurately. And so that's one level of, of wise view. 
But how this relates to wise action, which means investigating skillfulness and appropriateness of our behaviors, we have to look at what we do, what we do has consequence and whatever you practice, you get better at. And what we misperceive a lot of the times is where our happiness truly comes from. We see the short-term rewards of a decision. We misperceive and we get lost in the promise of temporary satisfaction over long-term happiness in our lives. We filter things through a desire to feel good over a desire to be fulfilled. You know, and the Buddha is saying that if you want to feel good, you ultimately have to do things you feel good about. Right? We have to embed ourselves in some principles, you know, wise intention, which is what I want to kind of talk a little bit about next. Some motivating forces for our behavior, because when we just do what feels good, we don't always feel fulfilled. And so sometimes we have to do what doesn't feel so good to feel fulfilled. And that means that we have to have a steadfast commitment to certain principles. And the three of these in in the next path factor of wise intention are the principles of renunciation, which means living simply, letting go of the extra things in our lives that are just causing stress, you know, looking at letting go of anything extra, any excess, And uh, the second principle is goodwill. Goodwill means that deep down all human beings, all living beings desire safety. All living beings desire to some degree happiness, well-being in their lives. And so we live from this principle of aspiring to being in a world that promotes goodwill. And to being a person that tries to promote goodwill. And the third is harmlessness. Harmlessness, to not cause harm. And so, if you want to feel good, you ultimately have to do things you feel good about. We misperceive where our happiness comes from. A lot of the times, you know, the reason why I do things is because I want to avoid conflict You know, if I think about recently some times that uh, I haven't done what I value, it's because I was afraid a lot of the times. I was afraid I wouldn't get what I'd want. I I was afraid that um, I would upset another person or inconvenience someone. And so, you know, we, we come up against our fears and we come up against these these rationalizing habits that we have. And we have to really look at where does our happiness truly come from? Does it come from feeling good or getting out of conflict or does it come from doing good? And I find that more often than not, my happiness comes from doing good, not feeling good. Sometimes they're the same thing. (laughs) Fortunately, I like those ones. So This is not an intellectual exercise, right? This isn't a debate about morality. Um, It's an embodied practice. It's an inquiry. Embodiment of spiritual principles that create wiser and more skillful behavior in the world. And I say spiritual principles because I really feel like these principles bring us closer towards peace and social harmony. 
And although they're humanistic principles, I, I could say that they're ethical principles. I think that really the, what the Buddha is pointing towards here is not just a secular ethical principle. I think he's talking about an aspiration towards living in a society, in a community that promotes goodwill and renunciation and non-harming. I think that there's an aspirational quality to practicing ethics. It's not just do right because it's right and because doing right makes me feel good. It's do right because right promotes peace and harmony and creates equality and overcomes oppression and untangles systems that cast people out and cause suffering. So I say that these are spiritual principles that we really have to embody. It's a place we want to live from. It's not necessarily the world we live in. So this is another hard thing for the mind to to toil with. When I look at the Metta Sutta, for example, some of y'all know this, this discourse where the Buddha says to not despise any being in any state or wish harm upon any being in any state. When I look at the world right now, I say, I don't know, I, I kind of despise a few beings. I wish a few beings harm. <laughs> you know, that's because I'm responding from, to the world that I live in. Right? But my aspiration is to live with a heart that's undefended and a heart that really wishes for peace and harmony. But I have to understand that I don't live in that world right now. And so when we have these conversations, you know, it's, it's such a Buddhist paradox. Like the Buddha talks about the whole paradox between black lives matter, all lives matter. It's, you know, in, in some forms of Buddhism, they call it relative truth and ultimate truth. Ultimate truth, duh, all lives matter. Relative truth, we live in a society and an experience where all lives don't matter. So we need to focus on the lives that need to matter, right? So we aspire for, ultimately, social harmony, you know, peace for all beings. But we live in a world that doesn't, that is the Buddha calls samsara. It's a cycle of suffering. It's, it's the habits of greed, hatred, and delusion that cause this dissatisfaction and suffering in our world. So this is an embodied practice. And we really, I think, have to start if we're looking at things like activism and engagement, we have to start with embodiment. And we can't, it's not that we have to get perfect in embodiment before we can be engaging in the world, but we've really got to look at how we're affected and impacted by suffering in our world before we um, just get so reactive around it, you know, because it's not sustainable over time to not be embodied and to just be engaging. The Buddha says that our actions are our only true possessions and nothing protects us from unhappiness better than a commitment to live with integrity. And this commitment must be remu- renewed every day, right? Because we forget, we forget and we fall asleep and we get hot caught in our, in our habits and we get pulled out of our commitment. So embodiment is almost about commitment to living with integrity. And it's a discipline, Doing, thing, doing something consistently over time means that we establish that thing more strongly inside of us. 
This is why we meditate. And it seems so counterintuitive because, you know, as the world burns, we sit here and, and, and quiet down and slow down and we try to find stillness. And when there are lives on the line, we can, I think, have a lot of fear that slowing down means doing nothing. But slowing down doesn't mean inaction. We can slow down also in action. As we slow down, we create more conditions for stillness. As we create more conditions for stillness, we create more conditions for contemplation and reflection. And it's really the best tool we have to end suffering. The survival mind is not sustainable over time. It's valid. Rage, anger is valid. And and it's a helpful energy, but it's it in and of itself without space, without wisdom, rage is not sustainable over time. And so that's the only problem with with uh, the survival brain is that it's not very, it's not very sustainable. (laughs) Uh, So embodiment means to slow down and slow down again doesn't mean uh, to not act. It means that even while we're acting, right? And if some of us are engaged in our communities and going to protests and, you know, want to do something to change the world, like don't slow that down. You know, that's a, that's a great motivation, but to slow down in that, to find stillness in that, to feel the the generosity in that, to feel how good that inclination is, you know, and to find some uh, reflection in that space means that we can really, I think, be a lot more sustainable in our engagement with the world. So I want to talk a little bit about engagement. I'm going to talk about this more generally in the Buddhist context, but we can talk about this also in our world today. The way that the Buddha talked about practicing wise action is undertaking training precepts. These are uh, guidelines to help us to take inventory of our behaviors and to really practice trying to align our actions with what we value. And the way that the Buddha taught the, the training precepts is they're, um, they're all phrased as practice of renunciation. So I'll give you an example. The first one is undertake the training precept of not intentionally causing harm to any living being. So it's to refrain from harming. And I really like that approach because the Buddha is saying that uh, it's a burden that we, we, we shoulder when we harm. And so the training is to let go of the need to cause harm. The second precept is to undertake the precept to refrain from taking that which is not freely given or freely offered to us. So again, it's a commitment to uh, practice generosity. You know, it's a it's a commitment to um, to cultivate generosity, but it's a letting go of the burden of deception, stealing, and possessiveness. 
The third is undertake the precept of uh, refraining from sexual misconduct. So relieving us of the burden of uh, unsafety, of creating unsafety and untrustworthiness. Right? So it's a commitment to practice consent and a commitment to safety and trustworthiness in our sexual behavior. The fourth is undertake the precept to refrain from dishonest and deceptive speech. So letting go again of the burden of uh, dishonesty. And a commitment to truthfulness. And the fifth is to undertake the precept of refraining from taking intoxicating substances that lead to heedlessness. It's letting go of the burden of intoxication, of irresponsibility. And so I really love the way that the Buddha offers these as trainings of letting go. Because we find that when we really truly practice spiritual principles like this, it's not that we're giving up anything we really fucking want anyway. Right? It's, it's, it's when we... When we do act causing harm or, or lying or stealing or uh, being unwise with our sexuality, it's because, again, we misperceive where our happiness really lies. You know, we think that I need that, I need that attention or that intimacy or I need that, right? Or I can't handle the fear of the conflict that might arise if I do it the other way. And we misperceive that it's not actually true. It is scary, but it's not true. And so we're not really giving up anything that's inwardly cherished, right? We're, we're letting go of, of shit that we don't actually want. And uh, I wish someone would have told me this when I was a teenager because I used to just hear the rules and be like, yeah, I'm going to break all of those, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So um, when we're talking about engagement, we're talking about renunciation, which is expressed through the letting go or abandoning of unwholesome mind states, speech, behaviors, ways of living, And it's the cultivation, not just the letting go, but it's the cultivation. It's an awakening expressed through the cultivation of mind state, speech, behaviors, livelihood practices that we cherish. So these are just some of my thoughts on um, embodiment and engagement. And I really, you know, I I have a lot more to say about uh, more specifically the the world that we're currently in, but I I don't really feel like I need to uh, teach about that. I would much more like us to share about that. So I just want to hear from you all some of your words, some of your experiences with how you're working with, you know, bringing skillfulness to your life. And how you practice embodying that, committing to that, and also engaging in that. And, you know, you can think a little bit about, like, in your day-to-day life right now, what takes up the most time and what's most important to you. You know, what, what things do you need to change? What happens if nothing changes? 
right? And what things do you need to let go of that you're trying to work on letting go of and what's getting in the way of that? You know, so these are just some reflections for um, discussion. Thank you for listening. And feel free to jump in.